Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha. Designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. Well, welcome everybody. Welcome to the EquipCast. My name is Jim Jansen. I'm the Director of Pastoral Services here at the Archdiocese of Omaha. And I am so excited to have you all with us. Uh, we've got a really special episode today for the first time on the EquipCast. Our own Archbishop George Lucas is actually able to join us. If we're honest, it's actually the first time we've invited him. So, <laughs> so Archbishop, thank you so much for being with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks for the invitation. I've been hanging around outside your office for a couple of months now waiting, <laughs> waiting to be invited. These uh, equipcasts are well done and well appreciated around the Archdiocese and, and very much by me. So thanks. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. I remember the early days, you know, some of our first episodes when COVID was just hitting and all of us were struggling and you know, our hearts were going out to the DREs and youth ministers and pastors and everybody scattered around the archdiocese. And we just were like, well, let's, let's try a little webcast. Let's bring everybody together. And I remember those first episodes. It was so fun. I, I think it's probably good that I didn't recognize later that you were listening. <laughs> it was probably more free because we, you know, there's, there was a little, yeah, like, who's that George Lucas guy who's, who's, who's on there with his, with his microphone muted. But I remember you came down and you celebrated with us. It felt pretty triumphal after those first couple episodes as we were able to bring a, a really diverse group of leaders all across the archdiocese together. I mean, we had Omaha and Creighton and Benson and we were, we were all over the place and it was really, it was a neat moment. So I'm so glad you're able to, to join us today and to be with us. Thanks. I'm glad to be with you. COVID's been a pain in the neck, of course, in so many ways. But we've also been finding that uh, grace has been offered and we've discovered some new exciting and fruitful ways of communicating and, and acting during this time that we might not have discovered otherwise. Thanks for being open to this grace. Thank you. Yeah, who knew? The, the Lord is still with us and his creativity has not been stifled by this. He's, he's been giving us a little bit of that grace. So... Super excited to talk today. Some of our listeners are aware that you hosted a pastoral conference for all of the uh, priests of the Archdiocese of Omaha, as well as some kind of a select group of leaders that they invited. Some of them staff, some of them pastoral council, others just key members of, of the parish gathered together, uh, snacks, conversation. October 1st, we, we did it. So just a few weeks previous here to our, our recording of this. You had an opportunity to announce a big goal. We had been dreaming and planning and felt like the Lord was doing something. I think maybe one of the benefits for us here in the Chancery over the period of COVID is that we had a chance to kind of reflect on some things. And I'll let you talk about it, but through yeah, a group of leaders gathered together, praying and discerning with you, really felt that there was a call that the Lord was was giving to us, and you had a chance to announce that on October 1st. You're right. The COVID period has been a time of reflection for all of us in, in a lot of ways, and that's not a bad thing. One of the things that I was reflecting on, but I think we, we were doing that together, was on our pastoral vision, which we've articulated now for several years in, in the Archdiocese. It wasn't quite this decisive a moment, but I think we kind of were thinking, should we throw it out? Is it obsolete, you know, now that, that things have turned upside down so much? in our lives and in the church, or is this something that still inspires us mm -hmm. and, and urges us on? And I think we settled on the second. I don't think we're going to look for a new vision, and I don't think there's anything wrong with the one that we have, since Jesus is right at the center of it, and the, the call to discipleship and the opportunity to be formed as disciples is right at the center of that vision. 
But even before COVID hit, we were already thinking that we needed a new push for the vision. A a number of parishes and individuals have embraced it in in different ways, and we see beautiful fruits of some of those new initiatives already. You've been part of that yourself in your time working here. Well, and we were blessed as we reflected. We looked back at some of the original goals from the original envisioning process, and although not perfectly, we had a pretty good checklist that Mm -hmm. we had accomplished so much of what we had intended to do, whether it be the launching of a leadership formation program, the the mentorship program, Archo Maha Unite, really glad that we did that last year and not this year, a whole, whole list of things that we were able to accomplish. But yeah, we felt like there was a next step that we were being called to. Yeah, all of those things were, you might say, part of the first phase of mm-hmm. realizing the pastoral vision. And we formulated the goals before we really tried any of it and, and saw whether people would respond to it. But we found that many have been. But as you said, we could sort of we could check those off in a good way. We had taken some steps in a good direction, but there was more that was required. And particularly, I think we saw there was a goal remaining that had to do with integrating the efforts of the diocesan curia, of pastors and, and parish leaders of, of all of our institutions, serving the, the part of the um, vision that talks about us being one church, so th- that we had a, more of a common understanding of what the vision is, what it meant, what that called for from us, and then what it was going to take to continue to move ahead. Yeah, it was one of the unity goals that was still, it was that integration of a plan where the vision would come to life in the curia, in our parishes, in our schools. And You know, we're blessed with uh, tremendous goodwill with people who work hard. We've got a lot of resources in this archdiocese, to which uh, aren't always available in other places. The challenge becomes how do we integrate all that and sort of bend all that towards the realization and a deeper experience of the vision. The vision really is not a project so much as a hope of the, the kind of church we can be, the people mm-hmm. that we are called to be in, in Jesus Christ in, in our time. We had the opportunity for extra reflection because of COVID and all of the stuff that that brought and the obstacles that that seems to throw <laughs> in front of everything, the ordinary things we were doing, the new things we were attempting. But by God's providence, I think we realized as we thought about all that and, and prayed about it together that with the obstacles and challenges were being offered a, really a, a very powerful grace. And as much as anything at the pastoral conference and in articulating this goal, I think we want to tap into that grace, not let this grace moment go by, but ride that, <laughs> that energy, that divine uh, energy in a good direction. So tell us a little bit about what was the goal? I'm, I, I'm sorry, I don't have a drum roll here, but which we did because it felt kind of epic as we were having conversations, you know, within the Curia and the Chantry and kind of the discernment phase and planning for this. It really felt, I mean, we used the metaphor that, you know, like, gosh, it feels a little bit like the, you know, the John F. Kennedy moment where he announced that the United States was going to send a man to the moon and return, return him safely within 10 years. It felt that stretching. It felt that epic. So... Archbishop, what's, what's yeah, the big so goal? It's one of the most consequential things we've done, if I may say so. And it, it takes a little delving into it to see it that way, because it's one thing to build a big new church building or to announce a capital campaign where we're going to try to collect tens of t- millions of dollars. Or Those are all worthy things in their time you know, and when they're called for. But the goal that we're setting for ourselves is that within six years, each of our parishes, all of them, but, but each of them, will become missional communities, have certain characteristics, which I won't We've been reflecting on, we'll talk a little bit more about that probably, but that will help us see and experience our parishes in a new way. It's, I think, a new direction for all of us. We have 
well over 100 parishes all across 23 counties of the Archdiocese. So to say we're all going to take a big step in a new direction is a big goal, I think. And uh, six years is not a really long time, but it's not a short time either. As we've already seen, addressing the goals that we spoke of when we first articulated the pastoral vision, we can, if we get, get to work on, on things, we've got the talent, and by God's grace, we can accomplish a lot. So part of the size of this goal is really the depth of the cultural shift. And all, all of that is, is kind of hiding in that term, missional communities. Unpack that a little bit for us. What does it mean to be a missional community? What's maybe the kind of the points of continuity? And what are the points of, of contrast that we're going to, I think you said, experience something new? We look at the word missional, and it means to be sent. We think of the uh, initial sending in the church, Jesus giving what we call the Great Commission or the Great Mission to his first disciples, but really to all of us down through the ages. Once the disciples have gotten to know the Lord and have begun to experience life in him, then he sends them out, sends us out. Some missional communities will be outward looking and concerned about what it means to be a parish beyond self-preservation or even self-enhancement, kind of we might say, you know, get doing what we have bigger and better, mm. but doing the life of the parish in a, in a different way, in a way that really allows the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of his death and resurrection to sort of burst out of the, the bounds of the parish, burst out of the organizational structures of the parish to have an influence on the greater community around us. Hmm. It's interesting. This isn't, you know, we haven't used this language, but in some ways we said this is a goal about parishes, but we could just as easily say it's a goal about neighborhoods. It's a goal about families. It's a goal about the impact that our faith communities will have on all the people around them. It's this life of the gospel beginning to burst burst forth, you know, because so many of our listeners, they're the doers. Many of them are responsible for running, you know, youth ministry, religious ed, things like that, just faithful missionary disciples. At a practical level, can you give an example of what might a missional community look like? That's a good question, because I think what we don't want to say is that our uh, everything that we're doing is a big flop, and and we right. got to throw it all out. Yeah. Whatever it is, it's we're not going to be totally unrecognizable. No, exactly. And so the great blessing that we have is that we have a very vibrant archdiocese, and we experience vibrant parishes and schools. Family life is strong in our part of the country. You know, we're not in heaven by any means. We still have you know a long way to go, and we, and we stumble in in a variety of ways. But the Lord has been good to us, and those who have gone before us have been uh, faith-filled and generous. So that we have inherited what has been, we would say up until recent decades, a, a very vibrant Catholic life and, and experience. But that's been changing. And I think we need to be realistic about the world in, in which we're living and about the fruitfulness of now of continuing to do what we've been doing in a lot of the same ways, relying on the same institutions or, or structures to carry us into a, a vibrant future in a way that they don't seem to be built to do. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I, I think you're obviously your unique position as the shepherd, the pastor for the Archdiocese of Omaha, but just at a, at a natural level, you've seen the church throughout the United States, you've seen the church globally, you've got other bishop friends across the country that you have a perspective that I think is, is helpful for us. Because sometimes when we live in our own little communities, we don't notice the experience of diminishment. There's just fewer and fewer people every year, every week sometimes it would seem. 
you were very kind in avoiding saying that I'm also old. So that uh, that gives also another perspective. I mean, part of what happens when you get older is you just get set in your ways. But another thing that I think is a blessing is you have the experience of of some decades of of being part of the life of the church and seeing again the the fruitfulness if we could if we could put it that way of, of the things that we have traditionally been been doing. You know, in in recent years when we've been doing pastoral planning here in the Archdiocese, we almost always begin that process as we bring parish leaders together or members of the parish. We begin that with looking at the trends, Mm -hmm. looking at the the statistics, which surprisingly are often startling. Yeah, it's it's such a, I mean, I've only been president a handful of these, but I'm always surprised when the people of a particular parish faith community see their own numbers for mass attendance presented to them, there's usually audible gasps. And it's it's that we're so close to the reality, sometimes we don't even see it. And when it's presented, there's a newness there, even though it's our own reality, our own numbers. It's kind of fun. It's like, don't shoot me. It's not my fault. It's your own ushers who turned in the numbers. Right. right. But if we're going to move into the future and cooperate with grace and really fulfill the mission of the church, which comes from the Lord, it's not something we make up ourselves, then we need to really know the world we're living in and be honest about what the current efforts are yielding as a harvest, we might say, for the Lord and, and for the church and for, and for the world. So in general, what we have been experiencing in, over some decades now is a diminishment in most places across the country and in most places across our archdiocese. That means there are fewer people as a percentage participating in, in Mass week by week. There are about a third, uh, a third of the people who come, come to Mass every week, but it's not the same third every week. Mm-hmm. So really the percentage of those who but never miss, no matter what, is smaller than that. Well, and that's a third, not of Catholics, but of registered Catholics. Those who've even the, taken the time the, to say, count me in. we know about, yeah, right. So again, the church is, seems to be growing in some places because more homes are being built in, in that area and a, you know, Paris seems to be growing. But as a percentage, we're much smaller than we would have been 30, 40 years ago. And that's well, well documented and it's well tracked. Not surprisingly then, the number of infant baptisms is declining. The number of Catholic marriages is declining. Yeah, we, we've joked that funerals are the only only uh, sacrament that is on the increase. But I had someone correct me on that. It's like, that's actually not true. Right. It's not a sacrament, first of all. Yeah. It, it, it's yeah. not a... <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but you're right, because those who are now not going to Mass on Sunday aren't all that concerned about whether their mom gets a... You know, has a, yeah, a, grandma's a not around to speak for herself and say, I mean, sometimes she gives advanced, I, I would like mm-hmm. to, to have a, a funeral, but she's not there to enforce it. Yeah, right. So that's one indicator of a very important one, and particularly uh, participation in Sunday Mass, because it's always been true. The Second Vatican Council reemphasized it, that this is the source and the summit of our Catholic life. So mm-hmm. this, in a sense, is what really marks us as active members of the Catholic Church. So not passing judgment on anybody, but the Lord has given us this great gift. And if we're not taking hold of it and really taking advantage of it, then something important is missing. It's missing from individuals who are separated from that, but it's also then missing from the community, which is diminished because of that lack of faithful participation. And I mean faithful in the richest sense, you know, Mm -hmm. believing and, and wanting to be part of it and being nourished by it and all that goes with it. So those things are true. They're true around the country. They're true in other places in, in the world to a much greater uh, degree. We can't settle with the, the idea that, well, this is just our fate. You know, we're, life has its ups and downs, and we're going through some of the downs. That We can't imagine that the Lord wants the church diminished and doesn't want the impact of the gospel to really be felt powerfully 
in our time, you know, God knows we need it. It mm-hmm. doesn't take much reflection to see that the truth that Jesus himself is and, uh, and expresses about God's saving plan for us, that that's not just in the air these days. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's not normally part of popular culture and in some ways quite the opposite. There are people who, who we might say are work, working against it. So there's a great challenge, but also a great opportunity. But sadly, I think we have to see and conclude that the, the church as it's currently structured and sort of oriented is not really up to the challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that the Lord isn't up to the challenge, as you said before, the Holy Spirit's mm. not weak. But I really believe that at this moment that Jesus is shake us up a little bit and say there's important work for the church to be doing for the salvation of the world, not just for our own sake. And I want you to do it. And I'm going to give you what you need to do it. He died for those who aren't there. I want to go back to something you said earlier, because we noted this phenomenon that oftentimes when people see the kind of stark statistical demographic reality of their sacramental participation, mass attendance, whatever, it's surprising. And I think sometimes there's just this uh, human element where as things change ever so slightly and ever so subtly, we don't notice it. But I think there's another phenomenon that you alluded to is sometimes we don't want to admit it even when we see it, even when we experience it. So if I can, can you just speak a little bit as a pastor to pastors, leaders, to all those listening who find themselves resisting? Like they don't want to admit that things are shrinking, that what has worked is no longer working. Can you speak a little bit to those who just who are struggling? Again, don't want to presume, but perhaps fear is at the root of it. But those who are struggling, who are kind of resisting this call because it feels, I don't perhaps unfaithful to admit that things aren't working the way they once did. Yeah, we don't like to say that about our parishes. It's kind of like our families. We don't want to talk about the, you know what's not going so well out in public with everybody else. So I, I would say a a couple things to pastors. One maybe is a more personal thing. The other is a bigger picture thing. But the first is we're all in this together and everybody's experiencing this. So it's not a failure on your part. And it doesn't mean that, you know, everybody else has got a big secret for success that they're working out of and you're in the dumps, you know, and, and not paying attention. That's it's just not true. I have so much respect for our pastors, for, for our parish priests, and for the, you know, for the hard work and the dedication uh, it was beautiful, just a little sidelight. You know, our seminarians all got kicked out of the seminary last spring because of COVID, and we ended up placing most of them in parishes. So I was reflecting with them on this extended period that they had, you know, with our parish priests. I was reflecting with them in the, in the end of the summer before they went back to the seminary. And the overwhelming impression that they spoke about was was being impressed by how dedicated wow, the, the, that's priest, so cool. the, the priests are, how, how hard they work, how much is expected of them, how they have to face criticism for you know, doing their best and doing really good things. So I just want to make sure that I come down on the side of support for our pastors. And if it's some encouragement to them, to any of us, you know, I'm in the same boat here. As we look at diocesan statistics, it's part of a, a phenomenon yeah. it, well, it's in, in the church global. and in the culture. Right. No, almost there, global There are a few phenomenon. exceptional places on, on the planet yeah, Asia, where the church Africa. is really exploding. And that's not a small thing. And it's worth examining what's going on there. You know, I think we can learn something. But I want us all to be real. And, you know, let's look at the numbers. Let's really be able to admit together our experience that we look out and, and there are, are people we know who aren't there. 
many of our pastors are involved with principals and others putting tremendous effort into operating our excellent schools. We know there are a lot of families who love our schools and we love them and love the kids and, and the parents. But beyond that, there's not a, a presence in the parish or experience of, of their participation. Right. Monday through Friday in the school doesn't translate to Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, I, I just think that's, you know, that's a fact and we could show the, the statistics and I think, think we all just have to accept it, you know, embrace it, not in a happy way, but it, you know, okay, this is ours. This is where we are. But the second thing is, I just really encourage us to look at the world in which we're living. I mean, it's pretty coarse right now in in the United States in all kinds of ways, politically, racially, economically. It's much worse in other places in the world. And Jesus is asking us to have an influence on the world in in which we live, not simply to hunker down or to go into the bunker Mm -hmm. and keep things okay for ourselves and back with everybody else. Pope Francis says just issued a new encyclical in this regard. The recent popes have been talking to us about being a missionary church to not just take care of ourselves or worry about our own survival as a church or our own numbers, but to understand that the health of our church internally is also related to our focus on on the mission beyond ourselves. And that if we're not focused on the mission and if the rest of the world, if the rest of our neighborhood doesn't make any difference to us, then what happens internally is not going to survive very long. Yeah. I mean, if I can summarize, it's almost as though it's as simple as it's not your fault. You're not alone. And the world needs you. Right. That, that's beautifully put. The, the world does need, needs our pastors, our parishioners. The world needs the church as much as the world needed the church on Pentecost at the beginning, before the coming of Jesus. You know, the, our Heavenly Father looks on us and our brokenness with great love and mercy and offers us a way forward. Jesus is counting on us to participate in that way forward, and he needs our parish priests, our, our parishioners, to, to do that now. Let's talk a little bit about this, because I know as we've articulated in the pastoral conference and other places, that there's really kind of dual reasons for you know why this sense of call for our parishes to become missional communities. One is just that sense of diminishment as we look at the demographics and the statistics and the state of our world. But we've always said that there's a deeper reason there. It's a reason of grace that there's a call. Can you talk a little bit about that? What's this grace that we feel like the Lord is offering us now? Surprisingly, you know, it's a grace that's always been offered in some form in in different times. And it's a little embarrassing to think that we would be trying to experience the church now without kind of taking advantage of this grace. And and Mm -hmm. the first aspect of it is the Lord is offering a deep and personal and powerful relationship with him. Mm-hmm. for each of us, for all of us together. So those two are, are related, of course. So I think, you know, this great facing the diminishment and being realistic about our challenges and then also facing outward to the world and thinking about how we can have an influence, we shouldn't try that without inviting the Lord into our lives. He's right there and wants a deeper relationship with us than the one we're having with him so far. The, at the heart of our pastoral vision is the encounter with Jesus. Mm-hmm. It isn't amazing. We would be missing that in many ways. But I really think that it's at the heart of the diminishment and of the failure to see and embrace the mission, that we haven't encountered Jesus in a deep and personal way, haven't really bought the fact that he's the Son of God risen from the dead, that he's Lord of all this stuff we're experiencing. As you said very right at the beginning of our conversation, he's not put off by it or confounded by COVID or anything else. But 
I don't know how often that that dawns on us and and, and on enough of us. Well, I mean, you're right. It, it is somewhat, I don't know what the right word is, scandalous or shocking. They're like, oh my gosh, we've been trying to do this without Jesus. Or we've been, you know, we've been living in such a way where we've, we've forgotten him. But can you talk a little bit about that phenomenon where, again, just here in Nebraska, here in the Archdiocese of Omaha, where encounter kind of slipped off our radar screens. Like, how does that happen for Jesus's church? I know that's a really big question, but how does that happen? Because I think, I think speaking to that, in some ways, not that we want to, you know, kind of dwell on the autopsy, but recognizing what happened and how we might have forgotten that first love thing that maybe helps us rediscover our love again. Yeah, it's a complicated question, but it's a lack that we see in almost every aspect of the church. So it's in preaching, it's in our structures. I worked for an archbishop once who used to get furious when uh, he would see a mission statement for a parish or a school that didn't have the name of Jesus in it. Because again, whether people were taking it for granted or it hadn't dawned on them or or whatever, Mm. but but just so just speaking the name and sort of embracing Jesus as our Lord and Savior in every aspect of, of our life. We have developed these wonderful structures, schools, parishes, organizations of, of all kinds, and they can sort of take on a life of their own. But we can settle for a kind of mechanistic understanding of the church. Certainly people outside the church critique mm. us that way. The church is a sort of impersonal thing, grinding, mm-hmm. or and the church does this or doesn't do that. But we, I think, almost passively accept that identity for ourselves sometimes. That wasn't malicious, but we've just fallen down in, in every aspect, so I don't blame blame anybody else. Uh, I'm, I'm a preacher and a teacher for, for a long time now, but I think parents seeing that this is part of the privilege of their vocation to have Jesus right at the heart of it, and then passing that relationship on to their children, doing that effectively in our schools and again, in, you know, in preaching, and then really structuring things so that we consciously invite Jesus into it and acknowledge that it's his church, it's his plan, we get to be part of it. Mm-hmm. And rather than try to discover what he has in mind for us, we, we just sort of do what, what we did last year at this time. Without Again, it's not malicious, but it's easier. But the life gets wrung out of it at, at some point, and then Jesus himself is missing. I mean, again, he, we know he's not missing uh, spiritually, cosmically. Right. But he's our, not, he's our right awareness. Here, but our awareness, right. And then the, the, so then the effect that, that we allow him to have on us is, is missing. You know, he's right there. He stands at the door knocking. You know, he's right with us. But it's a relationship, ultimately, that he's offering. And if we're not, if we're not offering ourselves to it, then it's not going to bear such good fruit for us. Yeah, it's somewhat consoling. Because, again, having wrestled with this question myself, looking at the scriptures, this is just the classic MO of God's people. It's like, how do we know we're really God's people? Well, we embarrass our dad and we're, <laughs> we're you know, we, we tend to forget all the good things that he's done for us. I know, as we've talked before, there was something very particular about the American church that, you know, so many of us coming, again, into Northeast Nebraska from European ancestry, where the church certainly had a long, developed history. We came over and we, many of us, found ourselves not particularly welcome, depending on where you landed. You know, you came in on Ellis Island. To be an Irish or Italian immigrant was not necessarily good for your social or economic or political status. And this kind of perfect storm developed where we really sought to demonstrate our faith by building the institution of the church to show forth that, no, we, we're real. And that whether we were trying to impress our European ancestors, I'm not sure exactly what was going on, but we really leaned into the institutional element of the church. We're in a, a, an unusual situation here because we didn't have a rich culture 
Pope John Paul used to talk about culture being a vessel that would carry faith from one generation to the next. So you'd have mm. music and art and festivals and all kinds of things in the home and in, in the community and in the mm-hmm. parish that helped really carry faith along and both express faith but also help shore it up. If culture does anything, here it kind of carries money from one generation to the next, but it's really mm. not so focused on, on faith. But at the same time, we didn't have persecution. So there was the freedom to practice faith. And so sometimes mm-hmm. this gumption, you know, that we sort of naturally summon up in the face of somebody saying, well, you, you know, you can't do that. There was a kind of a passive persecution and, and a certainly anti-Catholic bias in some instances, in some places. We, we still still see some of that today. But by and large, we were free to set up our own operation and carry it forward, which we did. And as you said, it was really well organized dioceses, parishes, schools, the Knights of Columbus, the Catholic Daughters, I mean, just any any number of ways that people came together, and we were free to do that. And we could set it up, build buildings, and bring in money to support the, the works of the church. That was all all very possible here. And I think, like many Americans, have turned out to be the Catholics. So again, none of those, those things are bad. And as I said earlier, so much that really served the mission of the church and, and the life of the church in a certain period for several generations. Can you speak to that? Because I want to talk about this grace of pastoral conversion as the Lord is inviting us to begin to look at things and and do things in a new way. But sometimes there's this, for lack of a better way to describe it, there's this kind of artificial or superficial, okay, let's do something different that ends up being kind of a rupture or a break with the past. Or, I mean, if I can just speak honestly, it ends up being kind of a conceited, like, well, now we know the right way to do it and everybody else had it all wrong. And that's something we're rejecting, like that we have no desire to dishonor the past. How do we hold those things in tension where we can kind of honor our past, honor parents and grandparents who gave us the faith, and at the same time, accept what the Lord is offering in these new circumstances? Just personally, I will absolutely say that I did not pick the faith up off the ground. It was witnessed to me by my parents and grandparents, by Mm. teachers, by friends, by any number of people now over, mm. over all these years you know, that I've got to know. So that's how it's communicated. I didn't deserve that. I didn't earn it. But it's a gift that I have received, but it happened. And there are some people who sort of read themselves into the faith and, or who maybe just sort of stumble in mm-hmm. to a church at a given moment and have, have a revelation. That Those are beautiful and real experiences, but they're rare. The way the Lord has set it up is that the faith has shared one person to another, and it's done very humanly, often in terms of friendship or parental love or other things that we don't at all take take for granted, they're very powerful. So those of us who experience the faith today, we have it not as a sign of failure, but as a sign of the power of grace and the commitment, the generosity of the, of the people who, who have, have shared the faith with us. What we're seeing is that fewer, fewer of us are doing that. And we're at a, a point where there isn't a, a, apparently a general experience on the part of the people who are at the moment raising children, that's a single anybody out of mm-hmm. failure, but we just we just see that the faith is not being offered and, and received in such a widespread way by, by the next generation. Every year when we send out solicitation for the Archbishop's Annual Appeal, we include a prayer card if folks want to write down any intentions and they send them in and then, then I sit with those in my chapel and I read each mm-hmm. one of them and, you know, and pray about it. The overwhelming first place prayer that people send in is they're praying for children and grandchildren that often in their words have left the faith. Wow. I would say often they never were in the faith. And mm-hmm. again, that's, I'm not to quibble or, or not to, and I'm not passing judgment on it, on anyone, but it, it's just a simple fact. I see that in my own extended family, you know, there, I would say that there are those who, who may not 
be practicing the faith today, who it never it never really took. Maybe they were exposed to it but couldn't get it, or it came at a moment they couldn't receive it, whatever. But it's not so much that they gave up something, that, but it, it it wasn't um, it it didn't happen. But we know the Lord's not given up on them, and so we shouldn't either. So there's there's all kinds of opportunity out there. I wonder if that's why it's so challenging. I mean, just as, as you're speaking, the epiphany is that most of us who are in the church would say, well, it worked for me. And when we don't see it working for friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, the challenge is to then figure out, okay, well, how do I transmit this treasure that I found? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing we, we don't want to do is say the hell with all of them. Yeah. Literally, well, literally, literally, yeah. Right, exactly. So what's missing? And what could I bring to relationships to the situation that, for whatever reason, up until now hasn't been mm-hmm. experienced? Because when you say it worked for me, the way we describe that in the church is that it's, it's the work of grace. It's all grace. Yeah. Uh, you or I don't, you know, don't deserve a relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't deserve a life in the church. We don't deserve to have the sacraments and to understand them and love them. That's all a grace. We're invited to participate, and, we, and the grace is given to us to mm-hmm. to be able to do that. So our free will is certainly involved. But before we say, well, you know, if I can do it, you can do it, to the people yeah. around us, I think we want to go go into ourselves individually, but also as a community, and, and say, what could we bring that might warm somebody's heart or help somebody turn a little bit more, you know, in the direction of the Lord so that they might see him know him, hear his voice in, in some way through our collective work or something that I could do, a relationship mm-hmm. that, that, that I could have. So I, so I do think that involves a conversion for us in the church, and I think that's part of what we're asking and looking for as we set out toward this big goal, that we don't just want to preserve what we have for ourselves, even for our kids, although we do want to share this mm-hmm. with the next generation as people have shared it with us. But I hope that, you know, that we can see that, that Jesus is asking more of us. He's asking us really to do what others have done for us. They've done it maybe in different ways, in different circumstances. There are more people that he'd like to meet. And mm-hmm. he wants you and me to help with the introductions. We don't always know how to do that or feel comfortable doing it. So part of our challenge as we work towards this big goal will be to equip ourselves and our neighbors to be able to do that more confidently, more competently. It's really not that hard. Once we turn, so once the conversion begins to take place, which is what the what con- conversion means, that we turn away from one way of looking at things and doing things to a little different way. So we want to turn towards the Lord, but that also allow him to turn us out mm-hmm. to see the mission field that is before us, which is really people. It's not just stuff or numbers or cultural challenges or whatever. They're, these are people, brothers and sisters of ours. The Lord uh, is inviting us to turn to, to see them and then to accept his commission, his invitation to go to them with the, the light of the gospel, the mercy of the gospel, whatever might, might be needed. You know, as you're speaking, this image comes to my mind of you turning to the Lord in prayer, noticing his loving gaze on me, but then also noticing in his face that he's a little preoccupied. He keeps looking at my neighbor. There are people in my life that Jesus is attending to. And if I look at his face long enough, I should notice that he keeps looking not just at me with love, but he looks at them with love. And he wants me to go embody that for him to bring those people in. And we know that during his public ministry, 
we read it in the Gospels over and over again, he got a little perturbed, maybe more than a little <laughs> perturbed with the, the Pharisees and the scribes and others who were just sticking to what they knew and, mm-hmm. in a sense, preserving the way of doing things. Again, he said he didn't come to abolish all that, but, but to bring it to fulfillment. He certainly had his own friends and disciples who he spent time with and, and loved very deeply. But, but whenever he came into a town or to a new setting, there were all, always these people that he noticed beyond those groups who were sick, who were possessed, mm-hmm. um, who even were, like Matthew, for example, just preoccupied with themselves yes. or with their wealth or, or whatever, but Jesus noticed them. So it's worth our praying about as we look around within the parish, but also outside the door. Who, who is, would Jesus be noticing? Because he's noticing them now, and then what's his desire for them? And how might that desire for them, which is all about love and life, and how could that be realized? Yeah. Uh, who, who's going to help make that possible? And the answer from the beginning has always been obvious. He sends his disciples, the people who know him the best and who've already been touched by his mercy, for sure, to go out and offer what they have received as a gift to others. Yeah, and he does not hesitate to speak very clearly about the languages, ways of doing things, seasons that end up presenting themselves as obstacles to those people who he has his eye on. His strongest words are for those who, you know, end up, yeah, tying heavy burdens or putting obstacles in the way of those that he has his eye on, that he has an affection for. I'm reminded a little bit of it in Evangelii Gaudium, Pope Francis talks about this grace that he seeks for the church. He's like, gosh, I just wish that we had this this missionary option or this missionary impulse that would transform our languages and our seasons and our cultures and our ways of doing things so that all that we do could be leveraged again for the evangelization of today's world and not just our own self-preservation. Archbishop, we're going to do a deep dive with Father Scott on some of the particular characteristics of a mission community, but it might be helpful to talk a little bit about some of the three characteristics that we identified as a missional community. And our conviction is that they don't completely articulate everything that a missional community is. Of course, you know, beautiful liturgies and prayer and attentiveness to family and the works of mercy. And there's so many things, but there's something about these characteristics that we're convinced are going to work as levers to help bring about missional communities. As we talk about pastoral conversion, these are kind of new behaviors, if you will, that we think are going to bring this reality of a missional community about. So we're focusing on our parishes. So we're not blowing up the idea of the parish and tearing that up all up. And for the, for the record. So, <laughs> yes. So, so, so the first thing we're looking at is a collaborative approach to leadership in our parishes. In a way, we might say it's kind of softening the parish up and beginning from the top down to help mm. prepare the parish to receive the grace that's being offered and, and to pray and, and to think, bring the best minds and hearts together to think about how the parish can begin to experience this conversion, both towards Jesus and then outward to the community. We're seeing how effective this is in some of our parishes already, mm-hmm. pastors and parish leaders who are, are trying it. It might be a leadership team. There's other models to do it. But, but I would say I haven't really seen evidence of the conversion that I think is needed if this isn't happening. So there's just something about, mm-hmm. first of all, acknowledging the powerful gifts of the Holy Spirit that are being given in abundance to everybody in the parish, Mm -hmm. but to particular ones for leadership and to be able to have an influence in communion with the pastor. Certainly his role is unique. Again, not just to have a swankier structure or something that runs more smoothly, but really a different 
way of, of approaching leadership in the parish. We see in organizations all across human society, leadership is key. If we have good and, and effective leadership, all kinds of, of good things can happen because then the, the gifts of everybody get ordered and people hear the invitation to serve and to be part of something. So that, that's really what, what this is all about, and not simply to take burdens off the pastor or to, because we have fewer priests, those things are, pastors are burdened and we have fewer priests, those things are true. But this is good anyway. And mm-hmm. um, no matter how many priests we have, I've, I've uh, experienced it myself in, in all kinds of ways in different sorts of pastoral ministry. And I wasn't always in leadership myself, but was privileged to be part of a, like a school faculty or other uh, groups or even boards, you might say, that were exercising leadership, had responsibility, where there was a real working together and a bringing together of, of gifts, all for the sake of a particular mission that we all believed in and, and, and were working towards. And again, as I've gotten older, I always find a great deal of relief when I realize that I don't have to be the smartest person in the room. <laughs> it's probably not going to be possible most of the time anyway. But we're looking for the best, best idea, best, the deepest understanding of the Lord's call from whoever that might, might come. So it might be staff, other influential people in the parish, often a combination that work with the pastor to give a spark of dynamism and conversion, I would say, to to the parish from the position of, of leadership. I know at the end of the pastoral conference, we recommended, and for those who are interested, the pastoral conference is available on the EQUIP website, equip.archomaha.org. You can find the uh, links to the recordings of the conference and all the various sections that highlight. But we talked about how really like first practical step in this is Let's have a conversation. And, you know, we designed an assessment tool around collaborative leadership. So a pastor can invite a number of people to take that with him, listening to this podcast, listening to, you know, again, recordings of the pastoral conference can just kind of start that that conversation. Archbishop, what encouragement for, for those who are like, okay, I want to do this collaborative leadership thing, whether they're a priest or a pastor or a DRE, what do you recommend is just like this simple first step, the, the encouragement where people might be stuck and a little little hesitant to take that first step? Yeah, so pray about it. That's, that's always an easy thing to say, but really important, essential. Ask the Lord to reveal his plan for how mm. to bring the most effective leadership possible to the, the parish, the school, the, whatever the enterprise is that you have, have particular responsibility for. And I would encourage pastors especially to talk to other priests who have been experiencing this already. We had some witness to this at the pastoral conference, mm-hmm. and it really made me feel good to see the joy of the priests talking about their leadership, not as a burden, but they have found new life and, and new energy in it and have seen how it's beginning to bear fruit for the life of the parish that they love so much and want really to, to flourish. Yeah, it was very striking as they, as they talked about their experience of stepping into collaborative leadership, you know, establishing leadership teams, they were smiling. They were joyful. And by no means did they feel like they had everything figured out, but you could see that there was a new energy moving forward in this task. Mm-hmm. So there, there were two others. Talk a little bit about the other two characteristics, if you would, of a missional community. Mm-hmm. Another thing that we're looking for that we think is essential is um, to be able to kind of articulate and set out a, a path for a discipleship. So how do we all grow? How do we take the next step and then the step after that? As we said before, both in the direction of Jesus and out to the world in, in, into which he, he sends us. This has a lot to do with the equipping of disciples that we need. We mm-hmm. need it ourselves, those who are already active in, 
in the church. But for all of us, for the mass of parishioners, you might say, who are a little bit put off with how am I supposed to be a missionary and what's being asked of me, this is the way that we can continue to grow in our faith and grow in the confidence that we not only know the Lord ourselves, but we have something to share from that relationship with others. As, as I said, we often, parents and grandparents, pastors too, often pray and think about those who are not with us, mm-hmm. those who we really care about them so much because we know them, they're part of our, our family. We want them to know what we know, to experience what we see in, in our life with the Lord. We have to ask ourselves, well, what would be the first step that that person might take if that were going to happen? You know, there's some reason they are where they are. We know the Lord loves them. He's got more in mind for them than they're experiencing so far as, as he does for us. So what, what would be the first step that we could invite them to take that would not presume that they've got to jump real high or, mm-hmm. you know, swallow the whole catechism or anything, you know, on the first, at the first <laughs> moment, but how could they move from where they are into the first step in the direction of, of Jesus? And we hope eventually in the direction of, of the church. And that would, then what would be the step after that? Or when we have, additionally, folks who are already very much involved. So maybe it's parents at the time of the first communion of one of their children. Maybe they come to Mass every Sunday. Maybe they don't. But this is they value this, and they want something important for their children. They understand it on some level. So we work with them to, you know, to make that event happen. But how can we set things up in, in such a way so that they realize this is not just an event, but it, it's, yeah. it's a step? towards something more and to begin to taste what that more could be and and want it. Yeah, there's a moment of grace there that tragically, it seems like sometimes it slips away Mm -hmm. where even if just at the natural level, because we had to buy fancy shoes, you know, for First Communion, there's an awareness in families that something special is happening here. Mm -hmm. And to draw on that and draw people, whether it's, again, Quintanera, First Communion, whatever, to draw people in to that grace that maybe the young person is experiencing, maybe not, but to draw the whole family back into that grace. Here again, we're not starting from scratch. So we're talking about a a clear path of discipleship Mm -hmm. for our parish. Every parish will be a little different in in the details, but we have a lot of the components for for that. We have the sacramental life of the church. One thing about the church's devotional life. We have some organizations, some of them are more effective than others. But as we were talking earlier, the warmth of the faith, the desire to grow in faith often is, comes from the witness of one person to another. I think that probably needs to be more of that in, you know, on this path for discipleship than, than we would find, frankly, in, in, you know, in most of our parishes at the moment. Yeah. Not because we wouldn't want to do it, but we haven't thought much about doing things that way. It's going to be essential, I think. It's not so much programmatic, not so much event-based, although there are programs and events that can really help along the path. But, you know, when a, a man is ordained a priest, one of the, the church documents say, and we say this, we it's sometimes more lip service than actually happened, but we say that the formation that goes on to get somebody ready to serve as a priest doesn't end when you finish the seminary. That's something that needs to go on mm-hmm. our whole life long. So we hope there's spiritual direction, and we hope there's reading, and we hope there's groups that we belong to, and we not only preach, but we listen to preachers and all of that so that we continue to grow in our faith. But that's that shouldn't be the privilege or the responsibility only of, of the clergy. That's something yeah, that, that, every the, that the church should offer to everybody. Yeah. Because what we're saying, I think, as we talk about missional communities, is that we want every baptized person to take responsibility for the mission in, in some way. So if we're asking someone to do that, then every baptized person needs to have the opportunity to grow in faith and to become better equipped to be a, a missionary disciple, to, to share the faith, to stand up to criticism, to stand up to the challenges that we have in our vocations all, always. 
I think that's what we're going to try to discover, construct a mm -hmm. form, you know, over, over the, the coming years to, uh, in order for our parishes to have this missional orientation. Yeah, it seems like a big part of it is this equipping of those who know and love Jesus to find those places, whether it be corporal works of mercy or spiritual works of mercy, to find those places where the Lord is calling them alongside himself. But then also for us, again, to examine ourselves in light of those who aren't there. I love how you said that. What might be their first step? I think about, you know, you think about your nephew or your grandchild or whoever who's not a part of the community. It's like, what's the first step for them? Do we have a first step for them? Is coming to the catechism class on Wednesday night, is that going to work? Is that invitation going to bear fruit? And beginning again, I think maybe to rediscover some of our identity as communities where people are able to access the Lord through the relationships and just the experience of the community members. Certainly the programs and ministries will play a part, but even more than that, it's beginning to reform ourselves along the pathway that the church has laid out. This is how people enter the faith. This is how people grow and mature and are equipped for mission and attending to that so that in our parishes, that pathway of discipleship is clear and accessible to everybody at all times and all places and all stages of the journey. Part of that will mean that um, dedicated parishioners will have to be available for accompaniment, but that's the history of of how discipleship works in the church. Uh, when we talk about taking a first step, though, I think we have to recognize that someone has to help enkindle a desire yeah. in the person to take the step. So the Lord is doing that, certainly, but he also uses us to do it. Mm -hmm. So it's not simply barking at somebody, take that, take the first yeah. step, or asking them to look at somebody like me and thinking, if that step is in the direction of becoming somebody like that, n never mind. <laughs> uh, uh, Could you, yeah, r render it attractive a little bit. Yeah, right. So is there is there a real warmth? Do we communicate to, to that person that in the name of Jesus, I care about you for your own sake? Yeah. And I'm going to care about you whether you take the step or not. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, because often there's just sort of a judgment, you know, that comes alongside the invitation that we're, I think, in good faith trying to give to people. But there's this thing where, you know, I'm not going to think much of you if you don't. Do yeah. this and don't do it pretty soon. Well, it's back to that grace of pastoral conversion. Do I want this person to join our community because I'm tired and somebody else needs to take my place in the choir? <laughs> or do I want it because this is a good for them? And I'm so convinced that it is a good for them that I'm kind of detached as to whether or not it makes my life any easier, whether it fits into my expectations and my preconceived notions of, of how their journey is supposed to go. And even more than that, would I at some point be willing to give, lay down my life for them? So maybe yeah. not totally, literally at, at that moment, but <clears throat> sacrifice. Would I be willing to make a sacrifice for somebody else? Which might mean just biting my tongue and you know keeping my mouth <laughs> yes. shut, not passing judgment verbally, but maybe going out of my way to help someone in their need or to serve them or to welcome them to see that there's there's somebody in the neighborhood that thinks they're worth spending time with or noticing yeah. or offering help to. Or. This is a little bit of a tangent, but a number of people have noted how many of the pastors, as they talked about their experience cultivating missional communities, a number of them referenced their experiences with the Alpha program. And for the record, we had no, you know, we, we didn't get any kickback. There was no desire to advertise the, the Alpha program. But for those who are familiar with it, part of the training for those who are, who are table leaders 
is there's a very intense preparation to make sure that, okay, you just, you just need to understand when people who have not had a church background, who are not currently Christians or disciples who maybe don't have familiarity with the language, they're going to say some crazy stuff. And the coaching for those who are at the table leaders is like, you don't have to respond. Like, give them some space to say things that ruffle your feathers, to ask questions that have been granted and assumptions as, you know, deep parts of your life. Let them talk. Let them ask questions. Let them express themselves. And lo and behold, when people are given space and freedom to do that, then they begin to ask us questions. And, and the peace and the joy that God willing is radiating from our lives becomes attractive enough that then at a certain point, they're, they're actually, they want the answers. Ultimately, right, the answer being, well, I've got this friend, he's named Jesus. Mm-hmm. We think that that had to be a, a characteristic of the early Christian communities, that they were attractive individually and, and as groups, and people noticed that, that they lived differently that they approach things that might have been sort of subtle questions in their minds, that they approach those differently with a yeah. whole new, fresh perspective, and that they acknowledge God as God and, and worship God, didn't worship lesser things, and were willing to orient their lives that way. Again, if it's right and good, there's something attractive. Yeah, and, and attractive in a culture where the PR for the early Christians could not have been worse. I mean, they didn't have any of the advantages that we have of developed theology and written copies of the scriptures and schools and institutions. They didn't have that. So there were things they lacked, but they had all of, you know, all of this bad press about, you know, while they're drowning infants referenced in infant baptism and their cannibals are eating this Christus chap and they're atheists and all, you know, they, they didn't worship the, the gods of, of the others. And yet with all the bad press and all that they seemed to lack from our perspective, there was something attractive. And people literally at the cost of their lives would say, okay, I want that. I want to be a part of that community. It's inspiring. It's hopeful. Because however hard (laughs) pastoral conversion might feel now, we've got this cloud of witnesses that are like, yeah, I know, but they're not burning us, you know, in the streets yet. They're not throwing us to the lions quite yet. Um, and we see now some beautiful instances where the very same thing is happening. Yes. But it's not happening wholesale. And it's not the expectation on most of us who are baptized that that's my responsibility to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Cooperating with grace. God's plan being served. You know, we can't dictate somebody else's conversion or, yeah. you know, sort of dictate our own attractiveness. But if we don't stand out at all from the rest of the, of the community or worse, if we, you know, if we're known for bickering or for being snobbish or... Mm-hmm. Um, judgmental, what, whatever. That's the first impression that we're giving, that we're really not the church that Jesus is calling us to be. Yeah, we've kind of stumbled into the last characteristic, that culture of generosity, in that in today's world, again, for us here, the Church of Northeast Nebraska, uh, American, you know, 21st century here, extraordinarily blessed, graced in so many ways that there is something particular about generosity that we really feel is, as we cultivate that generosity, whether it be financial or the works of mercy, corporal, spiritual, that that generosity, that's going to be one of those marks that's going to be attractive. It's one of those attractives that differentiate us and really tell the world there's something supernatural here. Can you talk a little bit about the culture of generosity? Mm-hmm. And it's countercultural now as it was in the beginning, sadly. We're uh, often 
sort of schooled to, to watch out for ourselves and to watch out for our prerogatives and our freedoms and, and so forth. There's a real lack, certainly today I would observe, of a sense of the common good, that we bring what, what we have been given, what has, we have received as a gift, we bring that out <laughs> to serve not just ourselves but our neighbors and, and the good of all in, in some way. That's not socialism, that's not communism, that's the gospel of, Je- mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ. And it really should be a characteristic of ourselves and of, and of our parish mm-hmm. uh, communities. A different way of saying it is that I, at a certain moment, as my relationship with Jesus deepens, and as I see the opportunities I have to share the, the light of the gospel, that I make a decision to invest myself in it. Mm. So I've been given gifts. Some of them are spiritual gifts. Some are material gifts. They're all, the Lord can use any or all of them, usually in a combination, and I need to make them available. Not just, you know, if somebody pries them out, out of my fingers, but to offer them. The scriptures are just filled with an understanding of why this is good. Every good gift comes from God from the earliest times. We've seen that it's pleasing to God if we offer the first fruits, a, a significant portion, uh, back to God. God doesn't need it, of course, so how do we do that? We put it at the disposal of the work of, of the gospel in, in some way. Uh, Jesus gives us practical invitations to do that in the, in the corporal works of mercy. We don't have to invent this. Mm-hmm. But it, again, too, too often our experience in, in parishes has been when we need something, people are very generous. So the roof is leaking mm-hmm. and they say, can we all chip in and get a new roof? And, and invariably people will do it. So there, it's, it's not like there's a stinginess, but there's a call here also for conversion, mm-hmm. for uh, sort of taking the initiative to put a, a significant portion of my day, my money, my attention, my compassion over at the service of, of others in, in practical ways. So not simply saying, well, if somebody needs something and they ask, I'll give it to them. To have that flowing out of me, bearing in mind our vocation and our responsibility. So parents have responsibility for the welfare of their children. They can't give everything away yeah. that's needed to feed the kids and clothe them and so forth. So there are levels of responsibility and, and things that at certain moments take a a preeminence, you know, in, in terms of our of our responsibility. But when we hear the testimony of disciples of Jesus who have a lot of responsibilities and have a, an attitude of stewardship or generosity that they find God's not out on, mm-hmm. and they, they don't seem to run out. Yeah, well, this is in contrast to, right, sadly, too, too much of the experience that people say, like, oh, it's always the same people around here doing everything. And it, it always seems like we've we've experienced sometimes a, a scarcity and we're confident that for those who've met the Lord, there's a desire to give themselves. So we're not pulling teeth. There's a desire for those who've met the Lord to give themselves. And if we can cultivate that and help people be equipped for the particular ways the Lord is calling them to be generous, if they can be met and matched with the needs of those within the parish community and external to the parish community, then what the Lord is doing can be seen and known more. Uh, it really is kind of like where everything begins to come full circle. Mm-hmm. And here too, we see beautiful examples of it already. The challenge then as we move towards being more missional communities in our parishes is to make this expectation and this characteristic more widespread. So again, it, this is one of the things that we're, that we're known for mm-hmm. by almost anybody who knows anything about the church, that, mm-hmm. that we're generous. And that there's just this font mm-hmm. <laughs> of goodness, of uh, material help, of time, of attention, of friendship, whatever, whatever the Lord has blessed us with, that, that that's overflowing in, 
into yeah. the community. And you know, people don't have to look far to find it. They don't have to beg for it. Yeah, and often it's the seeds of the gospel. I mean, again, full circle, it's that first experience of the gospel and of missional communities where people say, hey, there's something different about these people. Mm-hmm. You know, we can do that personally, quietly, and we, the Lord encourages, don't you know, let the left hand know what the right hand is doing so we don't trumpet our generosity. But this is also something that groups of people can do together, families can do together. Yes. You know, there, yeah. there, it, it, there's a, an immersion in this culture of generosity that's good for all of us, individually, of course, but it's part of how we share this notion of discipleship with others and, and build it up in the community. For those who are interested, we're going to have Father Scott Hastings on the podcast, and we're going to do a deep dive talking a little bit more specifically about the uh, three characteristics. Archbishop, this has been a really uh, fun conversation. As we begin to bring our time to an end, are there any final thoughts, encouragement that you want to offer uh, those who are listening? Again, keeping in mind, we've got pastors and priests and youth ministers and religious ed and everybody kind of across the board, uh, all missionary disciples with a heart to serve the church, to bring the gospel to friends, family, and neighbors. What would you offer them in terms of kind of final words of encouragement and advice? Yeah, I encourage you to imagine what your parish could be six years from now. If it were, it had some of the characteristics that, that we've been talking about that was more widespread in terms of the experience in your parish. But I know Already, the pastors, uh, people involved in our parishes have a love for for our parish mm-hmm. communities, not only as a structure, but as people, a community of believers. So imagine, what would you love love it to be six years from now? And then pr- take that to prayer, ask Jesus what his plan is. In my prayer, I think it's something like we've been talking about here. It's, it'll vary from, from place to place, but I think this is very consistent with the gospel and with the teachings of the Pope, the teachings of of the church. So it, I would say in, bring an imagination to prayer, invite the Lord in, imagine with him what could be possible for your parish community and what would be the first step or first step in each of these characteristics, perhaps, and then pray for the grace to take that step. Confident right, that if the Lord is indeed asking or inviting, he's going to provide the grace, he's going to provide the accompaniment for the journey. Beautiful. Well, thank you. If you have enjoyed this podcast, if this has been a blessing to you, please uh, share it. We're on all the major podcasting platforms, EquipCast, all one word. If you would like to subscribe to the blog, you can get show notes and all sorts of other resources and uh, updates on events. There's going to be a series of workshops ongoing, diving deep into the key characteristics, beginning to help people take the first steps to bring those to life in their particular communities, whether it be a parish or a particular program or ministry within a parish, religious ed, youth ministry. All of the information you can find on equip.archomaha.org. Again, Archbishop, thank you so much for being with us. Would you uh, maybe just close us with a prayer and a blessing for our listeners? Yes, thank you very much. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you to be near to us. Help us see and be open to what you are offering us at this moment, a particular grace, a deeper understanding of your plan, a deeper relationship with you. And then help us understand more what you are counting on us for, what you are asking of us. Give us the confidence that the gifts of the Holy Spirit will be ours in abundance, both to to know and love you and, and then to serve you by serving the work of the gospel. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come upon you all and remain with you forever. Amen.